Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Fitter and Faster Coaches Corner. I'm your host, as always, Mike Murray. Today, I'm thrilled to have a guest from the University of Michigan, Jim Richardson, who coached there for many, many years. Jim has played a role in multiple capacities in USA Swimming and the American Swim Coaches Association over the course of a very long and storied career. Jim, I'm going to really try today not to get into too many fishing stories because I know we probably <laughs> end up being here all day, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Mike. I grew up with a special affinity for Michigan and Michigan athletics. My father is an alum of the law school. So mm -hmm. we grew up going to Ann Arbor on many trips. I've spent many Saturdays there. And as a young swimmer growing up, he would bring me over to Canham. So I probably watched some of your practices as an eight, nine, 10 year old without you even knowing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the same goes for Irby. We had Irby on earlier in the year. Um, and then you and I have a really interesting connection because the last time you and I were together, and this is going to date both of us, this was my uh, third year coaching at Marist, and you and I were having breakfast with Larry uh, Van Wagner down in Puerto Rico. Mm, yes, yes. Mm. That's the last time we were together, so um, it's great to see you. You know, I've seen you on a couple pool decks since then, but... Um, I wanted to start today with one of the things that you're most well known for is developing close bonds and relationships with your athletes that help guide them towards a really successful adult life. So the lessons that they learned while swimming for you at Michigan carry over into their adult life. Why has compassion and empathy been such an important part of your coaching over the course of the last three or four decades? You know, I don't know. I I think a lot of it is tied to your personality, for sure. It's it, it's about wanting to have a meaningful relationship with with your student athletes and with your athletes in general, so that the level of communication is not just on the surface level, but it encompasses what's going on with them as a human being, um, in addition to obviously what's happening with respect to their swimming, because, you know, everybody leaves swimming as a competitor sooner or later. And my take on it has been, what did swimming give you that's transferable into your life, not only while you're swimming, but especially after you're through swimming, um, all of the attributes that you can gain from having a great swimming experience in concert with the fact that you you don't have to sacrifice everything in order to be, you know, a, a really good swimmer. Yes, there are going to be some things you have to sacrifice, no doubt, but not everything. That's so true. And when I look back and see all of the success that you had in Ann Arbor, and you had some great assistant coaches that we'll get into more of our connections later, but um, what was your message to the staff at the beginning of each season to kind of help them foster those relationships and that trust between the athletes on your roster and your coaching staff members? You know, I don't think I really had to give a message at the beginning of the season because I tried to hire people who shared the same philosophy the same type of empathy and caring, the same um, 
I don't want to say necessarily the same style, but irrespective of the style, the caring and the empathy was always there. It was it was always behind everything so that the swimmers would never be confused as to why is this coach asking me to do this or why is this happening this way? And so much of that coach and, and the systems that you used to develop those relationships with your athletes was based on them seeing some initial success. So how did you prepare your athletes and bring them into the systems that you were using. I know that as a former assistant to Larry Van Wagner, we used a lot of the same things that you were doing at Michigan. We had that bridge because uh, Alicia Humphrey came out of our program and had so much success with you. What did you do to bring those athletes into your seasonal plan? How did they kind of know that this is where they needed to be in that part of the season? Well, the first thing was to give them as clear an understanding as possible of, of the nature of our training philosophy. And, and John and I, make no mistake about it, we were distance oriented, but um, in the latter years of my career, I wanna say the last 10 to 10 years or so, 12 years, I became more interested in diversifying to accommodate the needs of sprinters, um, which I have to credit Sam Freeze uh, a lot there because Sam was, in my mind, one of the great, great sprint coaches out there. And so I spent a lot of time with him, but notwithstanding, it, it was always, even in the recruiting process, we were very clear about our use of the color charts, um, are the fact that we were very aerobically based um, and we, we would show them sample workouts, although they would come in and be able to see a Saturday morning workout, we would do a handout, which we would take up later because back then you couldn't provide, I don't think those types of materials, but we were very, very clear about our philosophy and the science behind it. Um, and, and so that's how we, you know, integrated beginning in the recruiting process. And then the first few days of the season, we would have classrooms on understanding aerobic metabolism and anaerobic metabolism and allactate metabolism. And excuse me, a little bit of um, information on biomechanics because I'd spent a fair amount of time, you know, in graduate school and in biomechanics also. So that's how we did it. That was great. So it was almost like a crash course for your athletes in swimming physiology. Very much so. I've always been the kind of person who believed if you don't understand why things are the way they are, you can't own it. There's no way you can own it. So that just means you have to be compliant to authority, whatever that authority is. And irrespective of what that authority knows, or what they don't know. So once people understand the why behind what you're doing and how you're doing it, then there can be meaningful questioning and, and interchange rather than an authoritarian down from the top. I've got a couple of examples of swimmers who after a couple of years came to me and said, I don't think this training's working for me. And, and it was, they got better, but 
not significantly better. And we changed their training and they went from being a non NC2A scorer to finishing second in one event and uh, having the fifth fastest time in the other event, winning the console finals. And that was always a, a good source of, well, if you'd done this with me earlier, <laughs> and mine was, no, no, all the work we did before allowed you to do this when we made the change. So she was very, very, um, you know, open about it and, and good natured about it. You know, she didn't feel like she'd missed out on anything. And that, that's a credit to the relationship that you, that you had with the athletes, which is at the core of this. And when we talked to Coach Urbanchek earlier this year, he talked about sitting down with you and his wife and coming up with those color charts. And uh, talk to me about, you know, what was the athlete's reaction when you first started utilizing that? I mean, this is a system that we use firmly in place here uh, in my program at Victor that came from Marist Swim Club, that came from University of Michigan. And that story is similar to many, many teams across the country. So when you first started implementing that program, this is a great piece of swimming history for our coaches and our parents and our athletes to learn about. How did the athletes respond to it? Well, they didn't know any better because <laughs> nobody else was really doing it in a structured way like this. Um, and, and we didn't really know what we were gonna get because it had never really been done before in this format. John and I kept meticulous records of, of the T30s and we started out right away with T30s. And we learned a lot. Um, you know, the, it took us a couple of years. I remember one, we started out doing them in stroke because, because work is specific. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a backstroker, but you're not doing aerobic backstroke work, you're not building aerobic capacity into your backstroke. You're building it into freestyle. Um, and the, one of the things we learned is don't have your butterflies do it. <laughs> Our butterflies got better and better at a T30 and they got worse and worse at the 100 and 200 butterflies. <laughs> they had at the end of the season, our 200 butterflies were really bad. So we sat down and talked about, okay, what are ways we can build aerobic capacity into the butterflies? Um, and we developed, a, I, I used a, a former swimmer of mine's methodology, Bailey Weathers, who was a longtime coach, more recently the director of uh, swimming for at the Olympic level for Cayman Islands, but and and great coach at Notre Dame and South Carolina and um, Southern Illinois, and um, so we used I, I adopted his methodology for butterfly, but we definitely had the backstrokers, freestylers, and breaststrokers, and and in later years I would break up a T thirty into segments for IMers part of it backstroke, part of it breaststroke, part of it freestyle. And a lot of that came out of conversation with Jan Ulbricht, science of, science of winning. But yeah, the butterfly story was, I felt so sorry for him. <laughs> that was, and then I had a breaststroker one year who halfway through a T30, she was a freshman and she, she stood up. It was in the old pool in Ann Arbor. And halfway through, all of a sudden, she stops and stands up and she looks at me and she goes, whoo, I'm getting dizzy. <laughs> So, so uh, we've got some stories of T30s, but like I said, we kept records. 
monitoring heart rate, monitoring speed. Um, and, and from those records, we learned a lot about aerobic capacity and the development of it. And then later on, how to modify them for swimmers who just didn't have the physiology for, for great you know, ice sprinters, you know, just they didn't have a lot of potential genetically for anaerobic capacity. One thing that Larry used to say to our staff all the time was, there is no substitute for aerobic capacity. And, and I think that came from you and, and the conversations that you and he had. How often were your swimmers into knowing what their analytics were based on all of these different things that you were doing? Always, we posted the results. We posted the results with their pace per 100 for the T30 and their heart rates immediately post 10, uh, post 30 seconds, post a minute and totaled them. Um, I did graphs. Um, so I, I saw, I could see the, the variability within a team um, in terms of, you know, heart rates, using heart rates after each, we broke it into segments and would take heart rates immediately after each segment. Um, so we, we, we learned an awful lot about, you know, who, who was really an aerobic athlete and who just didn't have those genes, you know, and that's, that's really part of it is there is a very strong genetic component to, to every aspect of swimming, either being a great sprinter or being a great distance swimmer. And you get the rare athlete who sits in the middle, who can do it all. They can go fast on short stuff and they swim great T30s. Um, I think of Brent Lang for John could do that. I had Amy McCullough who she split 22 flat on a 200 free relay force and could swim under, under 10 minutes for a thousand in season in the middle of training. That's, that's rare. That's really rare. But you know, the testing would always reveal where people were and what kind of potential they might have. Sure. And, and what are you saying, coach, to those athletes that maybe came through a high school program or a club program where they, they weren't used to doing volume and they weren't used to valuing aerobic capacity? How did you help them navigate that space when they were doing their first T30? Um, you know, we always split the team in half for, team 30, for T30s and each swimmer had a partner. And, and the upperclassmen would certainly talk to the freshmen and, and they knew when they were gonna do a T30, we didn't surprise them. So I'm sure outside of the pool, there were a lot of questions, but our, our upperclassmen and upperclass women had, had done so many of them, you know, they would, they would tell them, look, don't worry about this. It's just a matter of, of you know, doing this and learning something from it. Um, it tells you to some degree where you are but certainly your, your psychological, you know, outlook towards it has a lot to do with the amount of effort you're going to put into it. Um, and that's something that is going to develop over time. They're going to be better their sophomore year than they were their freshman year. Um, and that's understood. I mean, that's, that's just part of learning something new. Absolutely. Was it a source of pride that you were training in a way that was really challenging and others knew it was really challenging 
was it a source of pride for you and the staff that you had that work works mentality in your program? I, I don't know so much pride. I, I always had the the thinking in the beginning. This is this is an experiment that seems worth trying, and we're going to learn a lot from it. There wasn't really a pride thing there. It was trying to explore this research that Melanie, John's wife, who's a PhD in exercise physiology, found this article, gave it to John, John brought it to me, and, and then I threw it onto Lotus 123. We didn't have Excel back then. Um, so it was this whole process of learning and what are we going to discover here and not knowing how long it was going to take us to, to discover, it, could we discover something? How long would it take? But it seemed to be something that had scientific validity and therefore was worth adapting to what we were doing and trying. So it wasn't, it wasn't there was really no pride involved. I mean, John always used to have this saying, you know, when you walk in the back door to the pool, there's a shelf there, put your ego on it and, and walk onto the deck because it's about, it's about each of the swimmers and trying to do everything we can to help them be better in the pool and out of the pool both. I love hearing that and, and knowing some of the story, it's absolutely true. Talk to me about what the thought process is as a coach of a major program in a major conference where there's so much history and you're taking a calculated risk with the training. What's the thought process that goes into that? Well, when you're not very good, <laughs> meaning you don't have a lot of great athletes, it's not as scary. But, but when you've started to get very good and you're at a place that really isn't focusing on, you know, long-term development, you're at a place where you've got to perform now. And, and if you don't, and I've been there, if you don't, there are going to be consequences um, because we're not paying you this amount of money to finish here. Um, and so consequently, I think it's a little easier to experiment in programs where um, the outcome for a particular season isn't weighed as heavily as the process that you're utilizing to learn something. I've, I've always looked at it like every year is an experiment. And, you know, in colleges and universities, part of your job, you know, if you're a professor is to you know, hypothesize certain things and then get your graduate students to go do the research to see whether what you're thinking is valid or not. Um, and, and I think coaching swimming is, is very much, it's a lab experience and trying to find out things from other people and deciding whether this could be implemented, you know, in your program and then having the courage to do that, understanding the environment that you're in and what the implications of that may mean. Yeah, I mean, those are all factors you have to consider as a coach, no doubt, no doubt. When you're in a season coach and an athlete is struggling 
And maybe they're not only struggling from a swimming standpoint, but maybe it's academically, maybe they're having a tough time adjusting to college life. What are some of the things that you put in place to help get that athlete back on track? And, and how do you manage those very emotional times as a 19, 20 year old, you know, coming in, expecting to perform at the Big Ten and at the NCAA level, much different level of success than maybe they have had in high school. How do you help that athlete quantify that and get through those tough times as, a, as an early student athlete? Well, you have, at a place like Michigan, you have a lot of support people in the athletic department. So we're very fortunate. We have sports psychologists. We have a social worker who, who really is great. Um, and, and Greg Harden um, worked with us for years. And Greg, well-known for his work with Tom Brady, well-known for his work with, with um, Desmond Howard, but he worked with any athlete that we would say, Greg, I think this would be a person for you to spend time with. So a lot of it, because you can't, as, as a coach, when you're dealing with 20 some odd, you know, athletes, you can't always connect with them and sometimes being the head coach you know it's just there's there's some things there that some athletes don't want to get into with the head coach for whatever reason having a great assistant coach really important um, but identifying the people around you in your department or even outside of your department who are willing to work with student athletes who are trying to negotiate whatever issues are keeping them from really being happy, fulfilled, productive, um, and contributing people um, on your team. So yeah, that's my thing has always been try to surround yourself with some professional people who that's their expertise. They know what they're doing. No doubt about it. And how about managing those expectations? You know, you're at a place like Michigan, you know, I, because I'm biased more so than others, understand some of the weight of that, but representing a university like that, that ex expects to win big 10 titles, expects to be in the top 15 at NCAAs every year. How did you help the athletes kind of figure out their place and their role on the team? I always tried to shield them from that. We never talked about that. We didn't. If any discussions came out about what we could do or whatever, it came from the team, came from internally within the team. But, but our position was always for you to be as successful as you possibly can be here, to utilize all the resources around you and take care of the process. I used to tell the people don't, you know, the swimmers don't let three days in February or three days in March define you. Those things can happen. It's great when the things that happen are wonderful, but in a career, there are going to be times when they aren't going to be. And what defines you is who you've been all season long, day after day. That's, what defines you and that's what we want to value being disappointed in performances that were not what we had hoped for experience 
absolutely. I'm that kind of a guy. I because I want it so badly for them when it doesn't happen. I'm really disappointed. And it was always hard for me. I couldn't hide my disappointment. And I didn't really, I tried to, but they could tell. But it was important to know that I wasn't disappointed in them. My thinking was always, what did I miss? What, what did I not see when I should have seen it? What did I miss so that next time this won't happen? Coach, 14 Big Ten championships. What if you had to go back and look at probably the, the, the number one cohesive collaborative thing that helped those teams be successful, if there is something, what would you say it was? Great internal leadership within the team, great senior captains, great people within the team. Those years, the captains really took their role seriously, not in bringing people in line, but in connecting with people. So when things weren't right with them, they would invite a swimmer over for dinner and have dinner with them and talk with them about, well, what's going on? And, you know, it was the internal leadership and dynamics within those teams. And some of them honestly weren't that good at that. They were just talented. You know, we just had a lot of talent, but the ones that I really remember the most were, and, and actually one of those teams was Alicia Humphrey's senior year. Um, and Jenny Almeida was her co-captain. And they just did a remarkable job of taking care of business within the team so that as coaches, we weren't putting out fires. We, we weren't tied up mentally, emotionally with issues, we could coach, we could really coach. And so that, that to me is a key element for any coach to hopefully have on a team. And, and I will tell you that those things may be impossible to have happen every year. Richard Quick told me after the meet at Texas when we, they won and we finished second and, and Richard and I became good, good friends. And and he, he said, Jim, you've got a problem now. And I said, what's that? And he said, you just swam the perfect meet at NC2As. And anything from now on is going to be potentially a disappointment. And we both laughed. <laughs> but I understood. I understood. And those years are the ones you hold as the standard. And anything less than that is going to be somewhat disappointing. But I think that it's, it's good to have those examples that it can be done. It can be done, and yeah. So, but as that's, there's no substitute for great leadership within the team. None, because if if you don't have it within the team, then the coaches have to take on that role. And now they're doing something besides coaching. Now they're having to manage dysfunction and leading, and you know, keeping people where they need to be, and all that kind of stuff. And that's that's draining too. It takes energy, sometimes more than just riding a workout and running. Wow, that's great perspective and, and so true. And you hit on so many different topics that affects coaches throughout the season there. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, what, what expectation after a season like that? Uh, talk to me, Jim. You know, you've had these athletes go through their, your program. And, you know, I'll just use Alicia for an example. After Michigan, she goes to Harvard. 
She gets a degree from Harvard and then goes to Wisconsin and gets a law degree. I mean, what an exceptional person. Um, and I know that you really value how successful your, your student athletes are after the experience. So, you know, what are some things that, that you hoped your athletes would walk away from their four years at Michigan? Be a great person. Be a person who makes a difference. Um, and that difference doesn't have to be in the world of academia and then social service. It can be having children and rearing children to be great people who are, who they're gonna make a difference. Um, yeah, that's, I, I never felt that any of our athletes had to achieve something monumental in the world sense after they graduated. Um, it was about them like I said, whatever they chose to do, whatever path they took, that they were going to make a difference in those around them. Um, and they've all chosen different paths. I mean, we've got some MD, PhDs, some lawyers, um, some moms, um, some, um, you know, have, have significant other partners. Um, and they've all made choices, I hope, on the basis of some of the things that we tried to teach them, but certainly those things could never be a substitute for the things they learned at home before they came to us. And those are the things that I, I think you, you hope to get people that what we're teaching meshes very nicely with how they've been reared before they come to Michigan. And that's a great segue to my next point was you have mentored so many great assistant coaches. Um, another, you know, Marist Swim Club connection, Stephanie Kurska, mm. uh, a longtime assistant. I think you guys are still working together in some capacity, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Stephanie's nephew, Mark Anderson, was one of my best swimmers as he was coming up through our program at Marist Swim Club. Um, talk to me about why it's so important for you to have developed those great coaches over the years. Um, as a board member of ASCA, it's something that I'm seminally interested in. And we, you know, we wanna educate our young coaches. Uh, talk to me about why coach education has always been important to you. You were the director of the College Swim Coaches Association for a time. You've been a member of ASCA forever. So why is that such an important part of, of what you did and what you continue to do now? I think, a lot of it has to do with elevating the level of professionalism that you see in coaching. You know, through the years, I've had the opportunity to interact and watch, sometimes from afar, coaching styles, coaching behaviors. And I would, I would often scratch my head because they didn't seem, some of them didn't seem to jibe with everything I'd learned in graduate school in my sports psych classes and sports sociology and the like. And actually right now I'm part of a small committee of about five people and for USA Swimming. And we're actively right now writing the coaches certification um, curriculum for USA Swimming, which we hope to have come out in, in formal form in 2022. So 
I'm very actively involved with setting up the curriculum for elevating the level of professionalism, knowledge base for, for coaches. I know with Stephanie, at one time she had come up through Larry's program and swam for John while she was in high school and then swam for me uh, and then came back after coaching high school. After a while, you know, I, I told her, I said, well, you know, she came to me and said, I want to know about more about coaching. So I sent her, I sent her to Bill Martin, our athletic director, who was the former head of the USOC to talk to him and get his advice about leadership. And then I gave her a, a couple of books from my library to read because she had no background in physiology and the like. So, and she spent a lot of time with John. So it really grew her, you know, as a coach and, and uh, took her, advised her to go down to Matt Kredich's uh, school of thought in Knoxville, Tennessee, where she met Jan Olbrecht and Matt and, and got more involved. And one of the byproducts of that is this year, boys high school and girls high school teams won the state championships in Michigan. And the first time for Pioneer High School in a long time. So, and she's worked as the manager of the US Olympic team. Um, so she said she was hungry to learn and, and she wasn't afraid to get into things that weren't her sweet spot you know, in terms of knowledge and understanding. So um, I, I think if you're going to be the best coach you can be, you have to do that. You have to seek knowledge that you don't have, find people who are willing to share. And, and most of the great coaches I've known growing up, Doc, rest his soul, what a, some great conversations with him you know, even when he was in a wheelchair, he'd come to women's big tens and, you know, we'd just talk about training and Gus Steger at Michigan and had conversations with Nort Thornton and Stefan Vidmar, who was, you know, Swiss, but in Australia and, you know, Jan Olbrecht. And I just was never afraid to contact these Steven Seiler, who does stuff in Norway's and exercise. I was hungry for knowledge, still am. And, and I think that you need to be that way as a coach. You, you, you can't be too settled in what you know. I, I think that the way I evolved using the charts is kind of a good example of that is I, I morphed them based on sprinters and events and things like that and frequency and sometimes starting the year with a T15 and not a T30. And, and building it up to when we would do our first T30 might be December instead of starting right away in early October with it. So, you know, it's, it's this hunger to learn more and then be able to look at what you're learning and figure out how am I going to apply this to where I am and the swimmers that I'm working with. It's just such an amazing experiences that you've had and you know, the people who have worked for you and everybody, you know, speaks so highly of you in that experience. And uh, it's just great to hear, like, you know, th this is the experience of a coach. And when you're in this profession long enough, you get to do some pretty cool things, whether it's at the University of Michigan or whether it's, you know, down the road at Swim Club XYZ, all of it is as valuable. And, and that, you know, you can, you can really feel that in speaking with you. And, I do want to take some time today to, to talk about my mentor who had a very close relationship with you 
man, you know, I joke with him, Jim, because this year the unthinkable happened and he finally retired. You know, I would ask Larry 10 years ago, I said, hey, coach, you know, he's like, yeah, I got one more. And then it would be seven more. <laughs> Sounds he, he like just, her band check. <laughs> yeah, he, he did such a great job. And uh, I know that he sent you several swimmers while at Marist Swim Club and, you know, a relatively small team in Poughkeepsie, New York, and created national teamers, you know, put some people on some really good USA swimming teams. Um, talk to me about your relationship with Larry and, you know, he learned so much from you that, that, that kind of trickled down to our program at Marist. You know, when you meet certain people, you know, when you speak the same language and you're on the same page about what's really important. Um, we were at the time we were, you know, really getting into this color chart stuff and probably you know if, if i could go back and redo that relationship i would have spent more time with larry asking him you know what did you do that you felt moved the needle um but i, I think it was probably pretty similar because the adaptation to our program by his swimmers was almost seamless. And I do think that was totally due to him because I think he prepared his athletes well for what was going to happen next. So, you know, he's with a group, a relatively small group of coaches that I've been so blessed to have relationships with who you're just on the same page and, and you cannot talk for four months but pick up the phone and it's like, you know, you've been on the deck with them every day. Um, those are the co coaches I wish that I'd lived closer to. So we could have gone out to have lunch. And this was way before Zoom, but got became popular. So sitting on a phone call, a, kind of a stale phone call was, <laughs> you know, it was not the greatest thing, better than nothing for sure. But yeah, um, yeah, just, and, and I think Larry's a great example of, you don't have to be a high profile coach at a division one power five school to be regarded as a great coach by people who really have a pretty good idea of what a great coach looks like. And Larry's one of those for sure. Uh, I advise, I just advised a coach yesterday who was looking at a division one program, power five, and I, I advise, be very careful that that's what you want. Be very careful because you're going to work 12 months out of the year and you're going to be up till 1130 at night making recruiting phone calls and recruiting never stops. And the pressure to recruit the next athlete who's going to replace the great one who just graduated. If you like that kind of stuff and, you know, you, you don't need to spend a lot of time with your family or you try to make it up with one or two weeks a year when you're still making recruiting phone calls, be very careful. That's what you want because that's what power five division one, in my opinion, has become. 
I'm so glad you brought that up, Coach, because that that's one of the last bullet points I have to talk to you about today. And a career, uh, you know, over 30 years coaching swimming. And talk to me a little bit about, you know, coach work life balance, because even as club coaches now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going on 21 straight days here with no days off between meets and practice. And I have to be very careful with the amount of time that I'm, that I'm putting towards running our club because there are so many other important things happening with my children, with our family. And so, you know, talk to me about how you balance that uh, and, and you did it wonderfully at a power five school. So what are some considerations coaches need to think about? Well, I think number one, it's easier to do in combined programs because you have five, if they have the finance, you have five full-time coaches. You have a head coach and then you've got two paid full-time assistants and you can, you can get a volunteer for each. So now you've got seven coaches on deck and you just take, you know, 50 people and divide them by seven. That's a seven to one ratio. Um, if you're in separate programs, not as good, not as good. And you can also have highly specific training groups, which reduces your workload in terms of writing workouts, because you don't have to write for every group and the distribution of labor there. All right, this coach is going to do travel. This coach is going to do, um, you know, scholarship. This coach is going to do this, that. Um, and so you're not you know, this coach is going to recruit athletes only in this area. So that helps make things better. I know Frank Bush, when he was at Arizona, he required one coach on his staff every summer to take the whole summer off. They weren't going to be on deck. They weren't going to coach. Um, they had time with their family. I thought that was brilliant. Um, much easier to do in a combined program when you have seven people coaching. So I think that when you're looking at, at a career, and, and honestly, um, when I came to Michigan, my wife and I made the commitment that she would not work full time because we had four children and a new baby who was born actually in December, my, my first year. And we're kind of traditional Southern, you know, people where the wife stays home and the husband works. And, and I knew then that I had to build swim camps during the summer because I had to have, you know, I didn't pay swim coaches a whole lot back then, a little more now, but so I had to do that. And it's not easy. It's just not easy. And I do have regrets. I do have a lot of regrets about, I wish I'd been able to do more of this with my children. I always tried to make up for it by when we went on training trips, particularly when we went to Hawaii, I would take the family as often as I could um, and tried to have those special moments, but they kind of understood dads. And, and I get it. I mean, get up at 4.45 in the morning, leave the house at five o'clock, get to the pool at 5.15 because there's no traffic then. Um, and so you're, you're going over that morning workout it starts at six, but you're there at 5.15 to be sure everything's okay with the pool. The lights work. There's no filter problems because none of the workers are doing that at 5.15 in the morning. The lane lines are all okay. 
so you run that workout from uh, um, six to eight, and then from eight to nine, you get ready for your run with John or Banchek. <laughs> we're out running nine to 11 miles from nine to 1030 or so. You come back in, you go over some emails at that point. You, got, you have lunch in your office, rarely leaving the office. You Then while you're doing that, you kind of go over recruiting. Then about an hour and a half before the three o'clock workout, you're going over that workout, editing it based on what you saw in the morning. Um, you do that workout from three to five, and then you're monitoring the dry land training from about 5.15 to 6.30. And then you get in the car and go home and you get home 7.45. If it snows, you get home at 8.30 uh, because of traffic. And then you throw something in to eat and you start recruiting. And you're doing that 12 months out of the year. I remember one year we took a vacation. We go to Emerald Island, North Carolina still regularly and love to surf fish, and, but we won't go there yet. <laughs> and in, in the afternoons and evenings, I have to come in and make some recruiting phone calls. Is that really a vacation? That's always there. It's always there. So, um, you know, you the opportunity to get away I mean, really get away for any length of time, um, I think is important. And through the years, as I got a little older, I realized a week wasn't enough. I needed two weeks because if it's just one week, you know, you get there on a Sunday and you're decompressing for about three days and then, you know, you've got to leave in three days. So you, you don't really have enough time to decompress and debrief yourself and just really get away completely and relax. So I think self-care for coaches is really, really critical. I mean, I've seen some friends of mine leave the sport this year, but I think, I think the pandemic for some of them caused them to reevaluate their lives and how they were living it and how much time they weren't spending with their family I think of times John would John and I would go out for a run and we'd run into Bo Schembechler and Bo would be driving in for work. This was out of season for football when we were going out for a run at 8.30 or 9. And he would always pull his Jeep over and John and I would stand there and have a conversation with him. And he loved John because John just gave him crap. And, and Bo loved it. Bo absolutely loved it. And I remember one time we were sitting there on Dewey Street right in front of the football building. And he looked at us, he said, you swimming coaches are crazy. You're crazy. You work all year long and you don't get paid one-tenth of what, what football coaches and basketball coaches get paid. And, and he was right. I mean, he was right in that regard. But I think we all do it for the love of the sport and the love of working with kids. We've just got to do probably a, a, a better job of evaluating our self-care and the priorities in our life uh, when it comes to your own children and your wife or your significant other um, versus the demands of the job. So I'm not sure that, and I don't think division one is making it easier. I, I couldn't believe it when they allowed the recruiting of juniors. I just 
I couldn't believe that. Um, and, and all of a sudden, your recruiting workload just doubled. Just doubled. Just what you need, right? Exactly. Sarcastic, but it's, I mean, I call them like I see them. And, and the irony in all this is that we're spending all this time trying to convince somebody to come to your school and you're just feeding their ego, feeding their ego. And then what do we expect when they come to your school? I expect you to take care of business and become a mature person. So all of a sudden the script gets flipped, you know, and because coaches aren't doing it with them anymore, they're doing it with the people they're recruiting now. So I, I think the whole recruiting thing is um, if it's done right, that means you get the people who are fit for your school first and then for you as a coach and, and your staff. Um, but if you're just out there recruiting talent, talent alone, that you can do that in some institutions. That'll last a pretty good while, but I'm not sure that has sustainability in the long run. Not sure about that. Great perspective on many fronts there. And I cannot wait to share that Bo Schembechler story with my father. He will get such a kick out of that. <laughs> He's, he loves some Bo Schembechler stories. Um, Coach, I, I want to transfer now into some quick fire questions that I have for you. And, uh, you know, you don't have to disclose your famous hidden fishing spots, but <laughs> <laughs> fresh water, salt water. What's Jim Richardson prefer? Salt water. Okay, all day. If Michigan is playing Wake Forest in the NCAA tournament, who are you rooting for? I want the team that plays the best to win. And that's not an out. I just, I've always been that way in watching contests. I, uh, I don't, I, I don't, don't pick favorites a whole lot. I, if I do, it's because I know something about the philosophy of the program and how it's run. And those are the programs I like to see. Coach, your swim camp <clears throat> was a breeding ground for many great coaches this day and age. We're the beneficiary of one Scott Wisner, who's on my staff. He swam at the University yeah. of Iowa. He, yeah. He's a big Jim Richardson fan. Uh, how, how challenging is it to run that swim camp every summer? And you had a lot of great people. Kathy Walker worked with your swim camp for a long time. Greg Meehan, who's at Stanford. Yes. Um, oh, come on, brain freeze. Um, I've got a brain freeze. We've got head coaches all over the country who've, who've, swum, who've, who've worked at our swim camps. Um, you know, those camps were a lot of work. <laughs> um, I'm fortunate I have a background in database construction. So if it weren't for FileMaker Pro, <laughs> they would have been even worse. Um, it would have been a tough job. But I always enjoyed getting things organized. I would turn the staff hiring over to my assistant coach. And, and of course, John would suggest some people. But we knew the kinds of people that we wanted to have in those positions. And, and of course, we had a lot of people like Susan Teeter, when she was at Princeton, her assistant was Greg Meehan, and she recommended Greg come to camp, go to go to Michigan camp and, and work there. And, and we've had, you know, we've just been blessed to have, you know, a lot of great, uh, Dan Schimmel 
who's at Stanford men's coach. We, we had both of their, their coaches, you know, on staff with camp. And, and I, I want to credit Kurt Kerner, who's the head coach at Hillsdale College, and Roger Carnes, who's leaving Lewis University now. Um, both of those guys, great guys, and they helped create an atmosphere among the coaches during camp where they were involved with everything and even had the option between sessions to come in and watch Club Wolverine train. Yeah, so I, I think that it was it was great. I mean, the, the camps, and I still direct the Michigan swim camps. Um, so it's, it's always great to see young coaches come in who are hungry to learn. And then the kids come in who want to get better. That's not, that's there few environments in life like that, that are that much fun, that much fun. I, I love to see you get excited about that. <clears throat> What, what is more advantageous, elite-level puller or elite-level kicker? Depends on how far you have to go. <laughs> Good question. Well, if you're a breaststroker, you better be a great kicker because <laughs> you're going to be in trouble if you can't kick. When we teach the strokes, we always start with a kick. After we do the boomer balance platform, we start with a kick. But if you've got small feet, then you better be a good puller better be a really good puller. So I tend to look at anatomy a lot to determine which, which area is probably going to be a strength. But boy, if you've got somebody with big feet, long arms, and big hand paddles, and they've got the physiology, just get out of their way. Get out of their way. I love it. Will eight minutes go down in the women's 800 freestyle at Tokyo? Well, I think, you know, Katie's looking pretty good now. And, and Ariana, I think did, she came close to breaking four minutes at their trials in the four. I'm not sure whether she did or not. I, I have less of a read on her. I think it's pronounced Ariana. Yes. Um, but that'll be a great race. Potentially, that'll be a great race. And if, if you need anything to take you under there. It's two people who are well-matched and well-ready to help each other go faster, um, which kind of reflects our philosophy. We never wanted to swim against. We always wanted to swim with, because when you're swimming with somebody who's going to push you like you can't push yourself, that's when, that's when real greatness, I think, comes out. Okay. Does it take a sub 21 second performance for the men's 50 freestyle to win the gold medal. I think it does. I think it does. I think the focus on speed, there's so many guys out there now they're big, they're big. And, and I think technically swimmers are better now than they were four years ago. Um, I, you know, I, I think it does. I think it'll be, I think there are enough guys out there that, you know, when Caleb steps up there, he's, he, he he's going to know he's, he's going to have to meet the challenge. Yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> you know, coach Marsh said something to me the other day. He's like, you know, if the 50 was the first day of the Olympic games, we'd probably see some faster times. No doubt. 
no doubt. I mean, that's why for years we talked about rearranging the event orders and adding another date to NC2As, and especially when you had trials and finals in the 800 freestyle relay, we were wearing out people. I mean, they were just getting, that's why the teams that were large and had big teams, they could, they could hold some people out. There was one year we qualified first with our 200 freestyle relay at NC2As, but Carolyn Joyce was sitting on the bench for Georgia and somebody else was sitting on the bench. We ended up third. We swam great. No complaints. We swam great, but um, yeah. So, you know, when your, your meet lineup is, and, and I think David's right as rain there. I think that speed event, if they're swimming hundreds and relays, stuff like that, that's, you know, that's where your aerobic capacity comes in for sprinters. How well you recover. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's one thing that Larry used to hit home with us all the time, whether it was, you know, the club or the college. And we want to be the best team in the last day. And there's one way to do that. <laughs> yep. 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 Um, all right, Coach. The next question is your favorite fish of all time. I saved the best one for last. Where were you? What kind of fish was it? What were you using? I was using a pen, spin fisher, 53500 with the St. Croix nine and a half foot steelhead rod, um, 15 pound braid with a 20 pound mono leader fluorocarbon as uh, a gold, it's a gold lure with a treble hook on the back. I'll think of it later. I was at Emerald Isle, North Carolina. The water was really blue and beautiful. I came up to the, to the condo, second floor condo, right on the beach, just behind the dunes to get something to drink and have a bite to eat. I had a piece of sandwich in my mouth and I looked out the window and I saw the four, false albacore busting within 20 feet of the shore at high tide. We had a king tide, high tide, and they were just busting the surface. I ran down to the beach grabbed my rod out of the stake, um, threw, one, threw one cast of it out there, hooked up right away. 15 minutes later, I put a 12 pound false albacore on the beach. That was epic. Probably the second one would have been steelhead fishing in the Muskegon River during the steelhead run in the spring. That came close, but that one was that I'll always remember that one. That was, and I just love beach fishing because it's a challenge every day. It's something new and trying to figure out where the fish are going to be and what they're going to feed on. And I don't care whether it's a, you know, 18 inch flounder or, you know, two pound bluefish or a redfish or pompano. Pompano fishing is a blast. So I just love walking up and down the beach and looking for underwater structure, meaning sandbars and sloughs and figuring in rips, uh, rip currents, just, it's trying to figure things out. And I didn't come by connected to swimming for me. I hired a guide who used to teach PhD at the university of Michigan who lives down in Emerald Isle. And we spent a day on the beaches and he taught me everything 
everything and it's it's totally worth it so you know it's not unlike coaching if you don't know how to do it find somebody who does know how who's willing to tell you you'll save a lot of time and in fishing you're going to catch a lot more fish a lot sooner rather than just sitting on the beach soaking bait and wondering why everybody else is catching fish and you're not or sitting on the deck looking at other people's swimmers going really fast and your swimmers aren't start asking start asking I love it because I was just going to ask you to, to as your parting your parting gift to us today because this has been a remarkable hour. One piece of advice to that coach in their first year, whether it's high school, club, or college. Reach out, reach out. Um, start reading. You know, part of it is you need to be discriminating, particularly today, because there are lots of people posting things online just to try to get, you know, people to think they know a whole lot. So you got to be discriminating. And I say to help that is to reach out to coaches who've been there and done that. They not only have the knowledge, education-based, but they've got the experience. They've been there, been through the ups and downs. I would also say, try to become a part of a group Try to, get, try to get a mentor and try to become a part of a group coaches who are willing to share what they've done and what they've learned from it. So education and then mentoring and then um, consulting with other coaches who, who maybe have a little more experience than you do. No doubt about it. Coach, thanks so much. How can some young coaches get in touch with you if they have questions after watching the episode? Yeah, my email, um, they can do umswim at the number one, uh, sorry, umswim1, the digit, at gmail.com. And glad to, glad to help as much as I can. A lot of times it'll just be here, read this book. Go download this book and, and just sponge it up. Learn everything you can and then see if you can figure out how to employ it in your program. All right. Well, hey, listen, coach, thank you so much. This has been such an awesome hour. And uh, I will certainly send you an email uh, this November, the day before the Ohio State game. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get some energy up and uh, hopefully we can go. start turning things around. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, we've, we've got a way. We got a ways to go, man. We got a ways to go. But we need both of those teams to be good. So the game means something. Yes. Got to start meaning something, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Well, coach, thanks so much, Jim. And uh, look forward to seeing you in, in some capacity soon. Hopefully we'll be able to do that at whether a convention or something like that. Wish you all the best this summer at swim camp. If you can get that going and hopefully Michigan starts to track back in the right direction. Yeah, I'm sure they will eventually. <laughs> thanks, thanks, care, coach. Appreciate it. Tight lines. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Take care, coach. Right.